Rachel. The reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 37, Jesus' dreams. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Silpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. And behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are ye indeed to reign over us? Oh, are ye indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture the father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and, he will, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But then Reuben heard it. He rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. When they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead where their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, 
What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my interpretation. It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Amen. Good morning. Thank you, Rachel, for uh, reading that passage to us. And as Alex has said, we're starting this morning a new series of five weeks on the story of Joseph. Um, I have to admit Um, As a child, I never liked the story of Joseph because the baker gets hung on the gallows. And uh, I can remember hearing the story, and each time I just hoped this time it would be the cupbearer who lost his head. Um, That's less of a confession and more of a plea for therapy, I think. Um, But yeah, it's, it's great to open up this series as we commence five weeks looking at the story of Joseph. And of all the characters in the book of Genesis, Joseph is probably the most self-contained. Yet it's not a standalone story. It's not a, a novel off by itself. And if we get too used to the story of Joseph as a Sunday school story or as a West End musical, we forget that this is the culmination of a thrilling book, the book of Genesis, that we're going to be considering. This is the finale, not a standalone movie. And since no one ever recommends a great TV drama by saying, just watch the finale. We have to do a little bit of work here at the start to look back over the previous episodes to see the trajectory that we've been on through this book of Genesis and where we are going to land in this climactic story, this conclusion. So just a little bit of, uh, this may be a little bit uh, small, but hopefully you can see that the book of Genesis splits into two sections. Firstly, we have chapters 1 to 11, and that's God dealing with the whole world. And then we have part 2, which is 12 through to 50, and it is God dealing with this one particular family, the family of Abraham. And in both of those two sections, there's three episodes, and our studies on Joseph are going to be the sixth, the finale. And although it may feel a long ways away from the story of Joseph, part one, of course, begins quite literally back at the very beginning of all things. God created all things, and at the pinnacle of that creation, there is humanity made in the image of God. 
created with purpose, created to be God's viceroy, his administrative power on earth, to reflect the goodness and character of God. That's where we start with Adam and Eve, man in charge, with the work of administering, guarding, developing the world, exploring, building culture, building business, art, community. But very quickly, of course, as we're familiar with in chapter 3, Genesis records how we morally failed. We chose not to build this world in partnership with God, but rather to take our own definition of good and evil. We de-godded God and decided to take the reins ourselves. And in summary, the first three episodes are a downward spiral of how we tried to rule in our own terms. It records humanity's own self-destruction. And in fact, actually, in the very next chapter, after Adam and Eve's moral failure, we have, of course, the story of Cain, don't we? Of jealousy, of murderous intent, brother against brother, as he spills Abel's blood. I wonder if that rang a bell when Rachel read to us Genesis chapter 37. Then in part two, as I said, we narrow into this one family where God, not forsaking this world, he chooses an individual, Abram. And he makes a promise to Abraham that through his family, among other things, he will bless and bring salvation to the entire world. This would be God's rescue plan, how he would restore us back to where we had fallen from the start in Eden. And so chapter 4 deals with the story of Abraham and his heir, namely Isaac. Chapter 5 deals with the story of Isaac and his heir, namely Jacob. And finally, we come to our finale, episode 6. And that's what we've read in verse number 2. See, in chapter 37, these are the generations of Jacob, the final chapter, the final episode of Jacob. And in each of these two episodes, in part two, in episode four and episode five, the drama has all been around these two sons. Is it going to be Ishmael or Isaac who takes the promise on? Is it going to be Esau or Jacob who takes the promise on? And each time it's the younger, not the older, who takes on the promise that God made to bring salvation and restoration to the world. But here in episode six, the challenge is going to be different. Now we don't have two sons, we've got 12. And no longer is it that the siblings are going to be divided and one takes the promise on, but now the problem is how are we going to bring these 12 together? Because the time had now come not to have a single family tree line, but now to make this family a tribe, and this tribe a nation, and a nation destined to receive the law of God, to receive the, 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 the word of God, the prophets, and ultimately to bring the promised Savior to the world. And so as we come to this, the finale of Genesis, there is hope. There is hope. And despite the twists and turns there will be in this story, malicious, bloodthirsty brothers, a lusting, privileged wife, injustice and imprisonment. We are all familiar, aren't we, with where Joseph ends up. It's the high point of the whole book. 
that in and through the wisdom of God, this character we're going to look at, Joseph, becomes the most celebrated administer in the world as he's raised up to become Pharaoh's viceroy. He rules over the agriculture of Egypt, the, the breadbasket of the world, and he successfully navigates multiple years of famine to work and build and maintain his charge, saving many people from perishing, from hunger and starvation. And so, without giving away the end, in this, the finale chapter or episode of Genesis, we're going to see a man who proves himself exactly where Adam failed. God's man ruling with God's wisdom under God's power. This is God putting things back on track. Abraham's great-grandson now saving nations. And this is just the first book in the Bible. There's 65 more for God to continue to reveal his promised plan. So the first point I want us to see this morning is that God accomplishes his promise. He has not left us to our own self-destructive behavior. The overwhelming message of Genesis is that God has a very real, a very effective rescue plan for the human condition. And what we'll see partly and locally fulfilled in Joseph will be fully and globally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Joseph is the prototype for what we see in Jesus Christ. And one day soon, the whole universe will see and declare that Jesus is worthy to take the kingdom, the power, the glory, the riches, and administer God's universe with justice and righteousness. Praise the Lord that God accomplishes his promise, that promise he made to Abraham, rather than leave us to our self-destructive ways. He's committed to us with a promise. It is a powerful and glory-filled encouragement that God is still in control, especially as we try to take in and comprehend the world in which we live. We lament over the evil, the destruction, the mayhem that fills the news over the last 10 days. We pray for peace. We know the enemy is real. But we know it's in God's sovereignty that he allows the pride of mankind and our determination to decide what is good and evil to result in pain and consequence, war, catastrophe, but we know however bleak it may feel, this is the prototype Joseph's showing us. It points us to God's ultimate king who will come and administer with truth and with grace. He will come back again and he will bring righteousness, justice with him. We can trust that God is good and that he is sovereign as we look at this story of Joseph together. So it's a good story to tell. It's a good story to share. It's good news to be preached. Christ has come. He has lived, he has died. He has been raised again and he will come again. So firstly, God accomplishes his promise. 
Secondly, now that I've given away the ending, let's have a look at Genesis 37. Because when you read this chapter, I don't know if you got it as as Rachel read it, but it certainly doesn't look likely like there's going to be a very good outcome. In fact, Jacob's family is a, a complicated structure, to say the least. It was a mess for different mothers, 12 children, one daughter. And to top it all off, in verse number three, we read that Joseph was favored by his father, Jacob. Now, you would think, as you've read through the book of Genesis, that Jacob, of all people, would know the damage family favoritism would do. His dad had favored his big brother. His mother had favored him. They had cheated the big brother out of the inheritance together. And these experiences that Jacob had lived had caused pain and suffering for years. It's like, as you read through Genesis, it's like relationship breakdown, deja vu. And at this point, you get to the point where you just want to pull your hair out. Why do they keep doing these same mistakes? But perhaps, as many of us know, maybe too painfully, in reality, sometimes we feel powerless, don't we? Not to pass on our own failures, our own weaknesses, of our own characters to that of our children. Or we look back and see the predispositions and weaknesses we inherit from our own parents. And anyway, this passage, it's it's full of, of irony, right? The brothers, the term brothers is used 21 times. And yet, there is absolutely no brotherly behavior in sight. In fact, three times over in the first section, verses 3, 5, and 8, we're told that the brothers hated Joseph because he was his father's favorite. Secondly, that hatred intensifies when Jacob gifts him this richly ornamented robe, more popularly known as the Technicolor Dreamcoat which became a perpetual reminder to the brothers that Joseph was favored by Jacob. And thirdly, the thing that seemed to break the camel's back, the straw that seemed to break the camel's back was these pair of dreams that Joseph had. One set on a field, one set in the heavens, both making the same single point that one day Joseph would reign, he would rule, and his family would bow down to him. And well, after he reports these dreams, verse number 11, the brothers were very jealous. And you can almost feel it. that The family is a mess, and it's getting worse. There's a growing, fiery, dangerous, jealous hatred. The same wickedness we encountered between Cain and Abel. It's like the same track is on repeat as we read through the generations of, Je- of, of, of Genesis. And as the story continues, it takes very little time as they see their brother coming out one day to the fields to to, to check in on them. They hatch a plan to murder him, dump his body in the water pit. The scheme even comes complete with a cover story. We'll tell dad a fierce animal has taken him. And it's almost with irony that the, the, the author tells us that Judah changes the plan If you notice there in verse 26, lads, you know, killing him is actually going to be quite messy, and you have to cover up the bloodshed, and after all, he is our brother, so 
we should just make a decent profit and sell them off to these human traffickers who are coming on their way to Egypt. I mean, how big of you and how kind Judah. And the more you read of it, actually the more it becomes quite sickening, this whole ordeal. And as you close the chapter, you sort of think, this is the family that is going to be the one that brings the promise of salvation to the world? I mean, there's literally no redeeming qualities. Jacob, a terrible parent, showing outright incendiary favoritism. Reuben is is weak and spineless, ineffective as the firstborn. It's almost again with irony in verse number 30. When he finds out that Joseph's been taken, he says, where shall I go? How about go after them and rescue your brother? Judah, he seems to be a natural-born leader, but he's greedy, callous, a sensual pig of a character, a, a disgrace, to be honest. And although I'm cautious to criticize Joseph, I can't read this chapter without feeling a certain sense of bradishness, a little bit of bragging, perhaps. He's at least naive, immature, lacking wisdom. After the first dream went down like a lead balloon, you would think he would have kept his tongue about the second one. And I feel at the end of this chapter, we're left asking, what, these guys? The fate of the universe? Our salvation rests on the shoulders of this family? If you'll excuse me, a lighthearted analogy, it reminded me of this film, The Guardians of the Galaxy, where this ragamuffin crew, you know, a raccoon, a hominoid tree, a very silent and moody assassin, are responsible for saving the destiny of the universe. And perhaps it's best put by their captain, Peter Quill, when he's trying to you know, inspire and motivate the, the, the team. He says this, I look around at us, and do you know what I see? Losers. When you look at this family, it's polite to call them losers. They're immature, murderous, greedy, horrid, perverse. That's the words that spring to mind. And yet, in God's grace, it's this family of losers that will be used to achieve his salvation. See, secondly, we see not only that God accomplishes his promises, but he uses real people despite their wickedness. This is the distinctive and crucial thing about God's salvation promise as it develops through the generations in Genesis. And particularly here in this passage, it is accomplished through real people in spite of their behavior, not because of their behavior, in spite of it. You go back through, you know, there's been lies from Abraham. Sarah pimps out her servant girl. There's been cheating and scheming from Jacob and Rebekah. Parents playing favorites with Isaac and Esau, and yet God does not give up. He perseveres with patience and with grace because this is the pattern of God's salvation. It's always by grace through faith. It's the same for us too. We're not called to be part of God's salvation through any sort of better behavior that we can achieve. That leads to insincere hypocrisy or our hopeless despair. No, Jesus Christ has accomplished our salvation decisively for us, outside of us, 
despite our behavior, not because of it. And when we put our faith in him, we do not add to the sufficiency of what he has accomplished in atoning for our sin and achieving for us a right standing before God. As Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so as we read this chapter, of course, we can read it as sort of instructive. You know, parents don't have favorites, but it's pretty obvious. Be aware of the sins and weaknesses of your parents that you have in you. As a church family of brothers and sisters, let's not be like this, all right? Let's love one another. But I don't think that's the main point to take home. Not just how do we behave better. What's more essential, what's, what's more practical even, is to marvel at the grace of God who accomplishes his promise to bless and to save through losers like this, like you and like me. We can be woven into the, the promises, the blessings, the salvation by grace and by grace alone. And that's not to make light of their wickedness, far from it. But grace is both how we start with God and how we must continue. So I don't know about you, but as you examined your heart before the Lord, before coming to the Lord's table this morning, I wonder, did you detect anything like the jealousy of these brothers, the selfishness of Judah, the weakness and ineffectiveness of Reuben, the immaturity of Joseph, the short-sightedness and rash decision-making of Jacob. We too, as we read this story, might feel trapped in generational failure and damage, upset by the weaknesses that we can see, the, the song that seems to be on repeat. But when confronted by this story, there's no space for hopelessness. There's no time for self-pity. It confronts us with the grace of God. And it shows us that from this darkness, God can bring the brightest of lights. So look to the cross, look to Christ. See that he has paid the penalty for sin. Repent without fear, confess with confidence, and remember the effectiveness of God's promise does not depend on your performance. But out of God's immense love for us, he has provided us with his own son, both to bear our punishment and to give us a right standing before God. So look around us, brothers and sisters. We're nothing special, except we're real people who have experienced the grace of God and know that because of it, people like you, people like me, can be used by God to accomplish his promise. Well, finally... Thirdly, the dreams that we had in this passage, they're an important thing to get in at the start of the story of Joseph. As I said before, it is important to know where this story is going. And the dreams help us to know where the story is going to end up. Joseph is going to end up in a place of power, and he's going to rule. And interestingly, unlike the earlier parts of Genesis where we hear a direct voice from God or even in the middle of Genesis where we get visions where there is a voice. 
Now at the end of the book, we have very little in the way of sort of visible manifestations of God. We just have this dream to show us that God's hand is behind the action and the twists and the turns to take Joseph from this time to the place of glory. And actually, on first you know, glance at this chapter, he's going in completely the wrong direction, isn't he? He just seems to be going down. You know, there's a, there's a certain, onomen, uh, uh, there's a certain uh, drama in the way the story's told. Jacob sends Joseph to the fields, and there's a kind of ominous buildup. I can imagine this wide panoramic shot of, 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 of um, Joseph on his own, kind of walking to, to Shechem and then going there and finding that they're not there and finding this stranger who points him another day's journey. And we just feel like this isn't going to end well for Joseph. And when he gets to the brothers, it's kind of graphic in how it's described. They strip him, they take him, they throw him, and then they sit down to eat, verse 25. Perhaps even the supplies that Joseph had brought with him. Speed, roughness, brutality, and then on to lunch. And Joseph is going the wrong way. It doesn't seem like the dream's really getting going. He's gone out, and six times the author tells us or mentions the pit. He's put down. He's going the wrong way. And the only time he's lifted up, he's brought out of the pit, given to the human traffickers who are then going down, verse 25, to Egypt. And as we conclude, as far as Jacob is concerned in verse 35, if he wants to see him again, he's going to have to go down to Sheol. And this theme is going to be continued next week as David takes us into the next part of the story. We're going to see that despite Joseph being loyal and righteous and honorable, yet again, he's going to go down to prison. And brothers and sisters, let me conclude where we began. Because Joseph, here again, is a prototype who reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Before he went up, he went down. He encountered betrayal, unfairness, violence, condemnation, imprisonment, loneliness, alienation. He had to go to the bottom to open the door of glory for us. What a day it will be when the world sees him and acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. And in the meantime, as we we, we wait for that, we're called to follow him. So it may involve going down. In fact, it most certainly will involve going down. Humility of character, or circumstances of suffering, or ridicule from others. There are things that will feel like pits, like we're going down, even though we're on the path to glory with Jesus. But these are steps that he has already taken. The prototype Joseph went that path. Jesus has gone that path. We will be asked to go that path. And it's a fertile path for the grace of God to grow in us. But as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Let's keep our eyes the same place where Jesus kept his, on his own future exaltation and the completion of salvation. So we know that God accomplishes his promise through real people despite their wickedness, but it's often, it's always on a path of suffering and then glory. So as we conclude, at times, Genesis is very bleak. It reports the brokenness and rebellious spiral of our rebellion against God. But this final episode is profoundly optimistic. In retrospect, we can see everything just happening at just the right time. God has not abandoned his original purpose. In Joseph, we see the prototype. In Jesus, we have the real thing. He is coming again. He shall lead his people and even nature itself to a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth and the reality of life that it describes to us. We pray that it will give us a humility as we look at world events and the human condition. We pray that it will give us hope and that as we consider your word this morning, we will leave with faith and trust in you and your goodness in our hearts and in our minds. For the glory of the Lord Jesus, amen.